to see what it's like to answer God. So if you have a Bible, turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 311 or in the large print 478. And just to remind us where we are in 2 Samuel, last week we looked at the first part of chapter 7. And we heard God making a great promise to David. But the chapter started you may remember, was David wanting to do something for God. David wanted to build God a house, a temple. David thought it just wasn't right that he was living in a palace while the ark of God was sitting in a tent. But then through the prophet Nathan, God spoke to David and he outlined his own plan. First of all, God explained why he'd never asked for a temple. It's because he is taking his people somewhere. God has a destination in mind, and his people aren't there yet. That's why God chose a tent for himself. And he explained to David he will travel with his people until they get to a place of complete rest. And then God made a promise to David. He said, you wanted to build a house for me, David, but I am going to build a house for you. Not a temple or a palace, but a dynasty. A line of rulers will come from you, David. And one of those rulers will reign forever. He will build me an eternal temple. And we noticed last week, this promise to David was not a new promise. It was a renewal of God's promise to Abraham. That promise was made about a thousand years before David. God promised to make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. He promised to bless all peoples on earth through that great nation. And that nation was Israel. And now God comes to David, an Israelite king, and God says, the blessing I promised to Abraham is going to come through one of your descendants. And we saw how the New Testament pinpoints Jesus Christ as that descendant of David. He's the one who reigns forever. He's the one who's building a temple for God. And that temple is not made out of bricks and cement, It's made of men and women who belong to Jesus. The New Testament calls them living stones. People who live to worship God. That's the temple King Jesus is building. And so God's promise to David, we saw, is for us too. We're part of the fulfillment of that promise. It's being fulfilled in our time and even in our lives. That's where we ended up last week. But now, having traveled all the way to Jesus, this morning we're coming back to David. Right after Nathan has delivered God's word to David. And we're going to hear David's response to God. So we're picking up in chapter 7, verse 18. And we'll read through to the end of chapter 7. 
Right after Nathan has reported to David all the words of this entire revelation, verse 18 says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There is no one like you. And there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. And to make a name for himself. And to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you've promised these good things to your servant. Now, be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight, for you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is God's word. And as this passage begins, David has just heard God's promise. God has revealed his plan to build an everlasting kingdom for David's house. And David responds by, first of all, taking hold of God's promise and then holding God to his promise. First of all, we see David taking hold of God's promise in verses 18 to 24. David has just received something massive. David went to bed thinking he was going to do something big for God. He was going to build him a temple. But David woke up to find the prophet Nathan on his doorstep. And Nathan unloaded this huge promise from God. But what God is going to build, an eternal kingdom from David's line. How do you respond to that? Well, look how David responds. Verse 18 says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I think we're to assume the place he goes is the tent where the ark of God is sitting. 
A few hours before this, David thought the tent wasn't good enough. Now he forgets his own ideas. He heads for the presence of God. And before David says anything, he sits in God's presence. He dwells on what God has said. He lets it sink in. He gets to grips with it. And as he does, God's word produces words in David. That's what true prayer is. It's our response to God's word. It's what wells up in us as we get to grips with God's word. And as David gets to grips with God's word in God's presence, the words produced in David are words of amazement and wonder. He is amazed by God's grace. Look at the second half of verse 18. Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? David is living in a palace, yes. But he knows he doesn't deserve the palace. David is the eighth son of a farmer from Bethlehem. A village in the middle of nowhere. Now you and I, of course, have heard of Bethlehem. But that's only because we can look back at what God did there. It wasn't much of a place when David grew up there. David was a nobody from a nothing family in a nothing place. But God chose him. And the reasons for that choice are only known to God. David is as weak and frail as anybody else. Any greatness there is in David is a consequence of God's grace to him. God chose David according to God's own heart. Not according to anything wonderful he found in David's heart. David knows that and God's grace amazes him. And as you and I allow ourselves to dwell on what God has done for us, isn't this where we end up too? Amazed by God's grace to us? Isn't that the only reason we could point to that God would bring us this far? It's not because of any great qualities he found in us. It's just his own gracious choice. And as we think about his promises for the future, don't we have to say, that's amazing grace too. It's not like we're ever going to deserve the future God is taking us to. Isn't this where true praise starts? When we're humbled by what God has done for us, and humbled by what he has promised to do for us. That's where David is. After his amazement at what God has done, he turns to what God has promised to do in verse 19. And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. 
What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. In verse 19, David seems to see that God's promise is for more than just David and his family. Rather than this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human, a better translation is probably this decree, sovereign Lord, is for mankind. The point is, yes, God is showing amazing grace to David, but that grace is going to reach all peoples on earth, all mankind. The eternal kingdom of David's descendant means blessing for you and me if we come willingly under his rule. And in the end, as David thinks of what God has done and what God has promised to do, he's just lost for words. In verse 20, what more can David say to you? David knows this God of grace is so much higher, so much beyond what David can explain. And so all he can do is pause and be quiet in God's presence. Maybe that's something we don't do often enough. Both in private and even when we come together, we can fill up all of our time with words. We can end up leaving no time to just pause and be impressed with our God. We don't always have to respond to his word with words of our own. Sometimes silence is the appropriate response. David prays, what more can I say? Because you know me. You know my faults, my failings, my fears, and still you've shown me grace. Still, you promise me eternal grace. If we ever stop long enough to dwell on it, God's grace will take our breath away. Let's make this a part of our own prayers. Theologians call it contemplation. Taking time just to think about God. Not our own ideas about God, but God as he is revealed to us in the Bible. Who he is, what he's done, what he's promised to do. The fact that he knows you inside out and he loves you anyway. that kind of contemplation will have an effect on us. It will make us confident of God's greatness. That's what happens to David. Notice how he picks up his prayer again in verse 21. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. And there's no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. How does David know God is great? How do we know? It's because of God's word. 
The book of Romans says, faith comes from hearing. Human beings, of course, can try to make up their own God, but our imaginations could never come up with the God we find in the Bible. A God who is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. Yet a God who chooses to create a world to share his love with. A God who is too holy to look on sin. And yet a God who is determined to save sinners, whatever the cost. Even at the cost of his own son. He's the God who deals with human rebellion by dying to save rebels. Our confidence in God's greatness comes from God's word. David says, you have made this thing known. We have heard it with our own ears. He's talking about God's revelation, God's word. You and I will never have much confidence in God until we listen regularly to what God has made known. Our faith will grow when we take hold of God's word. That's what assures us there is no one like our God. Well, maybe the next part of David's prayer is the most surprising part to us. Because it tells us that as we listen to God's word and get to grips with it, we become clear about God's people. There are lots of men and women who profess to be Christians. And they agree, God is great, there is no one like him. But they never quite get the importance of God's people. They go through life never really seeing how central God's people are to God's plans. They think it's just about me and God. We could call that Lone Ranger Christianity. But the Bible never presents things that way. The Bible is not about God and me. The Bible is about God and his people. God did not save you to leave you alone. When he saved you, he brought you into a people. Here in David's prayer, right after he says, there is no one like you, Lord, notice what comes next in verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. God's plan involves a people. Yes, it all started with one man, Abraham. But that one man, you remember, was a means to an end. God said, I will make you into a great nation. And God's promise to David points to a king, yes, 
but a king who will rule over a people, a kingdom. And in order to fulfill his plan, God worked to redeem a people. He redeemed his Old Testament people by bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. His New Testament people are redeemed from slavery to sin and death. God's people are central to God's plan. They're central to what he's going to accomplish in this world. And as you and I begin to take hold of God's promise, we begin to realize we can't truly love God without loving his people too. We can't love God and walk away from his people or be unconcerned about his people. And that's not because his people are any better than other people. We've seen David couldn't claim any special qualities that attracted God to him. And God's people are just the same. As a people, we have to say, who are we, sovereign Lord, that you've brought us this far? Who are we that you've promised us a future? But notice what God has chosen to do through his people. Verse 23 says, God went out to redeem them to make a name for himself. One writer says, the whole Bible story moves toward the name of God being known through the people he makes his own. The whole Bible story moves toward the name of God being known through the people he makes his own. That's how crucial God's people are in God's plan. God's reputation rests on his work for his people. I suppose there are other ways God could have made a name for himself. Maybe with banners in the sky. But God has chosen to make a name for himself through his people. You and I might think that's a pretty risky plan. But it's the plan God has chosen. Here's how the New Testament puts it. These words are written to God's people, now consisting not just of Jews, not just the nation of Israel, but Jews and Gentiles who are trusting in Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. And the New Testament ends with a picture of that people, taken from every tribe, nation, people, and language. They're pictured gathered around God's throne, declaring the praises of God together. When you and I get to grips with God's promise, we become clear about God's people. From now until forever, 
God has chosen to make a name for himself through his people. And so as we take hold of God's promise, part of our response would be to treasure his people more. Not because his people are impressive or attractive in and of themselves. No, we will treasure God's people because we know God treasures them. That's what makes them attractive to us. David has sat in God's presence, taking hold of God's promise, taking time to get to grips with God's word to him. And that has produced a response in him. It's left him amazed by God's grace, confident of God's greatness, and he's come to a clear understanding of God's people. They are central to God's plan. But now... David's humility gives way to something different. What we see in the second half of this prayer is incredible boldness from David. Now he begins holding God to his promise. Look at verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. Now there's no arrogance or bossiness here. David hasn't forgotten he's talking to the Lord Almighty. But this is still pretty striking boldness. And maybe we think, well, this is boldness only David could get away with. But remember the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We've been looking at it on Sunday evenings as Steve takes us through it. Jesus says to his disciples, this is how you should pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Isn't that what David is praying here? You've promised an eternal kingdom. Do as you promised. Your kingdom come. And you may not have revealed every little detail of your will, but you've revealed quite a few details. So your will be done. Keep your promise, Lord. You've said you would provide a place of perfect rest for your people. So lead us on to that place, Lord. You said your king would reign forever. So let this world see his reign, Lord. Bring men and women and children into his kingdom. So this boldness is not just something that David could get away with. Jesus told us to pray this way. But notice why David is praying this bold prayer. It's not first and foremost for David's sake. Look at the end of verse 25. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel. 
David can boldly hold God to his promise because he's praying for God's sake. If you or I want a bigger house or a promotion or a certain relationship that we have our hearts set on, those are prayers we're going to have to pray a little bit tentatively. Because we might wonder deep down if they're mainly for our own sake. But when we pray, your kingdom come, we can pray that with complete boldness. Because we're praying for God's sake. And what happens is, this prayer for God's sake becomes a prayer for our own sake too. The more we dwell on God's promise, the more it's going to seem good to us. The more we will long for it to be fulfilled. The more we get to grips with the promise, the more we'll begin to feel What could be better than for God's kingdom to come? What could be greater than for his will to be done? For this world to be filled with his greatness and his grace. But maybe this still seems like a strange idea to us. Maybe it just seems a bit too forward. Asking God to do as he promised. Well, look where David gets his courage from. It's not because he's an especially bold person. It's certainly not because he takes God lightly. Look what he says in verse 27. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight for you, sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David shows us how we can be bold to hold God to his promise. Even as we recognize his majesty And his sovereignty, we can pray with courage from God's own word. David says, you are Lord Almighty. Who am I that you've brought me this far? Who am I to speak to you? And yet, I find courage to pray this to you because you've revealed all this to me. You've already promised to do what I'm asking you to do. So let's search God's word. Let's take courage to hold him to his promise. And we will find many promises in the Bible. But all of them trace back to this one great promise. God has given his word. He will redeem a people. He will lead them safely to an eternal kingdom. And this promise will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ, the descendant of David. 
But what about praying for our health? What about praying for our unsaved family or our career options or that relationship we've set our heart on or any of the 101 other things that concern us every day? Can we boldly pray about those things? Yes. We can bring God's promise to bear on all of those things. We can pray, Lord, you haven't promised me a trouble-free life. But you have promised to make your name great through your people. So make your name great in my situation. I can't see how you'll do it, but I hold you to your promise to do it. You've promised to build your kingdom. So build it in my situation. You've promised to lead your people on. So lead on in my situation. You've promised that your church will declare your praises. So do as you promised. Help us to be a light for you in this village and even beyond this village. Whatever it is we're going to pray about, as we bring God's promise into our prayers, we will find our prayers get a whole lot bigger. We will move from, Lord, just get me out of this mess, to, Lord, fulfill your plans in this mess. Glorify your name in this mess. Build your kingdom in this mess. Bold prayer is prayer that starts with God. Who he is, what he's done, and what he has promised to do. And so before we gather around this table... We're going to spend a few moments just focusing on the greatness and the grace of our God. And we're going to follow David's example. We will sit before the Lord as we sing. Let's do that as we sing, How Great Are You, Lord? And then we'll stand to sing Amazing Grace.